This episode of Awards Chatter is brought to you by Universal Television, presenting Girls 5 Eva. Girls 5 Eva follows a one-hit wonder 90s girl group who attempts a comeback while hilariously navigating family and relationships, plus the joys and pains of middle age. The show stars Sarah Bareilles, Renee Elise Goldsbury, Paula Pell, and Busy Phillips. Don't miss the series critics call the funniest show on television. Girls 5 Eva is now streaming on Netflix and is for your Emmy consideration for Outstanding Comedy Series and all other eligible categories. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to episode 60 of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporters Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and this very special edition, a roundtable conversation with seven of this year's Tony-nominated actors, is brought to you by the iconic Empire Hotel on New York's Upper West Side, as well as The Humans, a new play by Stephen Karam that's been nominated for six Tony Awards, including Best Play. Directed by Tony winner Joe Mantello, you can get your tickets for The Humans right now at Broadway.com. Now down to business. Our guests today are Alex Brightman, who's playing Dewey, a screw-up who finds new meaning and purpose while posing as an elementary school teacher in the musical School of Rock. Leslie Odom Jr., who's playing Aaron Burr, a politician whose life was and legacy is forever intertwined with those of Alexander Hamilton in the musical Hamilton. Gabrielle Byrne, who's playing James Tyrone, the patriarch of a family in crisis in the play Long Day's Journey Into Night. Reed Burney, who's playing Eric, a janitor from Scranton whose family is living on the brink in the play The Humans. Danny Burstein, who's playing Tevya, a husband and father trying to preserve tradition in a fast-changing world in the musical Fiddler on the Roof. Zachary Levi, who's playing George, a store clerk exchanging love letters with a woman he's never met in the musical She Loves Me. And Jeff Daniels, who's playing Ray, an ex-con confronted by the much younger woman with whom he had a sexual relationship when she was 12 in the play Blackbird. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Thank you all so much for being here. It's an honor to have you. Thank you for having us. Thanks, man. Absolutely. And to begin with, I'm going to direct one question at each of you, and then we're going to have a free-for-all. But to begin with, I just want to talk about how you came to the role that you're here on behalf of and why you were drawn to it. So, Leslie, I believe before you ever read Hamilton, you saw at least a part of it in workshop, right? Yeah. Uh, my wife was up at Vassar doing, a, they do a New Works Festival up at Vassar. You guys know Powerhouse. And um, <clears throat> she was up there workshopping a new musical, and so I was up there every weekend, and they were doing this new thing, Hamilton mixtape. And I knew Lynn's work from In the Heights. I'd seen In the Heights. I was a big fan. And um, it was a hot ticket even then. You could not get a ticket into this black box theater where they were doing this thing. And so I'm, I'm getting a ticket. <laughs> so my mother-in-law, who was there also seeing Nicolette, we got the last two tickets in the back row of this black box theater. We felt like, you know, 
Willy Wonka. (laughs) (laughs) And I had just, I'd never seen anything like that. Two minutes in, what am I looking at? What is this? And it's music stands, you know? If something works at that level, if something is working at a music stand, you're good. Um, And I, early in, you know, two, the, the second or third song in the show is called The Story of Tonight. And it was four men of color on stage singing about friendship and brotherhood and love. I had never seen anything like that. Mm. It was a revelation. And then in terms of actually getting in there, you were pretty persistent, right, about well, yeah. possibility. Well, yeah, because then... Did you have to slip your way? <laughs> well, <laughs> also, is Lynn gentle? <laughs> <laughs> And did it work on the mic stand level then? <laughs> <laughs> that too. That too works at the simplest level. Unbeknownst to me, they had been talking about me for this part, about trying me out in this part. And this, this role in this project just came at a time in my life, you, you know, you just, you hope when the moment comes, you're ready for the moment. Because 15 years in the business has taught me, you know, what a rare thing this is. And so, I'm just, I'm not some kid that's gonna wait around and hope you know how I feel about it. No, no, no. After every single time we're doing a workshop or reading, I'm letting them know I want this part. I, I wanna stay a part of this show. I'm, there's no pressure here. <laughs> so if you feel like you need to see other people in the role, great. And I understand you should. Because Don't ever say that. It worked out. But no, it worked out. Again. But here's the thing. I'm done saying that. But here's the thing. Jeff about was it. almost Superman. It felt like we were walking towards commitment. You know, I had experienced it sort of in my relationship. And, and I didn't want there to be pressure. I wanted us to be, if we were, when we were standing face to face at that, you know, under that hoopah, which we did, you know, I wanted us to both have, have made the choice every day to say yes to continuing in this relationship. And that's what we did. They could have let me go at any time. And I knew that, but I didn't want them to guess about how I felt right. about it. You don't have to guess about that. I love this show, and I will give it everything that I have. Sure. Do other people like the show? <laughs> <laughs> well, let me, uh, let's turn to Reed. Reed, this is not the first time you've played a, a man who's sort of character who's sort of living a life of quiet desperation, but I yeah. believe that it's of the blue-collar variety. It's the first janitor yeah. I've yeah. ever played. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's terribly exciting. Um, I was really nervous about it, because yeah. uh, I, I, I didn't think I would cast me as a janitor, but I'm so grateful that Joe Mantello and Stephen Karam did, um, and it's been thrilling to do. I did a reading of it in October of 13, which is how I first got involved. An actor had dropped out at the last minute, and um, they asked me to really just do a favor, and and, uh, and the guy who was directing it at the time said, it's not a perfect fit, Reed, and I thought, oh, yeah, no, it's <laughs> <laughs> you're right. It's been miraculous that it worked out this way. And Alex, you were acting in Matilda, I believe, when you were first asked to, you know, read for a part in this. It wasn't necessarily going to be the lead, right? No, it wasn't the lead. It wasn't the plan in anyone's um, eyes. It was. I was doing Matilda. I was playing a child, clean shaven, really clean cut, um, and I did a reading of School of Rock, at playing one of the children. Um, they all the adults played kids just to see if the script was working and. I like doing readings because it's fun to elevate somebody's words that are at a really base level and just sort of show them what the words can be. Uh, And the director took a shine to me and asked me if I would want to come in just for the show, not for the lead, just to see if I could come in. And my energy was right. And 
I came in, I started singing, and it was the first time in 10 years that I've been here that I got to sing real rock and roll in an audition. And they had the first time in 10 years that anyone had heard me do that. Um, that wasn't at my karaoke joints that I used to host <laughs> right before this. Um, and then they handed me the material, and I started handling that well. And then they had me improvise for 45 minutes in my last callback. Um, two scenes, as long as it took, and I left the room, and they gave me the role for the off-Broadway workshop, and then again said, this is not for Broadway. And the way they said it was like, it's not gonna happen. <laughs> I just wanna let you know, stress. Yeah. And, and by the time we had invented for four weeks doing this wonderful show, uh, before we started performances, they said they're gonna, um, they'd like you to do it on Broadway, and I couldn't believe it. Yeah, it, was, it was one of those weird, starting from the bottom, now we're here. Who sings that? That's Drake. 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 Yeah. Right. Big Drake fan. Danny, Fiddler on the Roof is a show that you've been involved with over decades, right, in one way or another, but it seems like, from, from what I understand, you never thought Tevya was a part that would be uh, even a, a sort of available to you. No, I, I, <laughs> I always thought it was uh, played by an old guy. <laughs> All of a sudden, here I am. Um, I was, uh, two and a half years ago, I was doing Tally's Folly off-Broadway with Sarah Paulson, and the director, Bartlett Shear, came to see the show, and he said, let's grab a beer after the show. And we went out, and he said, look, I've been asked to direct Fiddler on Broadway. It's not for two and a half years, but um, I'd like you to play Tevya. The issue is, they may want to go with somebody very famous. So just know that I want you. And you can't tell anybody, so just, you know, think about it. Like, okay, what do I do with that information? Uh, but about a year and a half later, uh, I officially got the call and you know, could tell people, you know, and I could start to work on it in earnest. That's great. Yeah, I had done it before twice, when I was a kid in uh, high school, and also with Theodore Bikel in, wow. um, in wow. Summerstock when I was 21. Wow, wow, so, wow. It was great. Terrific. Uh, Gabriel, this is not the first time you've done Eugene O'Neill on Broadway. In fact, I think it was both Moon for the Misbegotten and A Touch of the Poet. Uh, what is it about him that you're drawn to and that led to this particular opportunity? I don't know, really. I, I, I just feel a kind of um, empathy with, the, with, with the, the characters that he, that he writes. And uh, when I did Moon for the Misbegotten, I played Jamie Tyrone, who's the son of the character I play now, James Tyrone. And it just seemed, um, it just seemed inevitable that somewhere along the line I would uh, play that role, the James Tyrone role. And after Moon for the Misbegotten, I thought, oh, I, I don't really want to do O'Neill again, but there's something about the challenge of it that you feel you never quite get to the top of it. You know what I mean? You feel you get a bit up the mountain and then you fall back down so again. Rich. Yeah, yeah. So rich. The writing is so rich. Yeah, and the, 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 there's a ruthless kind of honesty to it. And I, I think e, e, even O'Neill's titles, like for example, Long Day's Journey Into Night, it's not called Long Night's Journey Into Day mm -hmm. because the ruthless honesty of his writing is that we are all headed for night and there's no cozy resolution, no what they call closure at mm -hmm. the end of it. Um, they said that he wrote the play, you know, that his wife described him coming out of the room where he wrote this play, um, bloodless, uh, uh, shaking, in tears. 
and he refused to have the play performed during his lifetime because I think he must have felt enormous shame and guilt about having subjected his family to this kind of microscopic mm -hmm. uh, emotional and psychological um, observation. And um, not to be too pretentious about it, but I've always felt that, like, especially in O'Neill, I think, the role of the actor, I feel, is to say, okay, he wrote this and it cost him an enormous amount to do it. And your job is to take what he's written and, and, and as best you can, good, bad, or indifferently, present it to those people who come in. And it feels to me that as an actor, um, you get to feel very powerfully your, your sense in, in, in the chain of handing it on. Jeff, you have previously played this part, 2007 Off-Broadway. Curious how that came about, but also what changed in the intervening years that, from what I've read, made you feel that you wanted to subject yourself to it again? It's not a walk in the park, so I'm curious the initial time and then also why you came back to it. Lynn Meadow at Manhattan Theatre Club in like 2006 sent it to me saying, does he want to come back to the theater? I was out in Hollywood doing bad movies. <laughs> and so, and wasn't happy, and, and I said, yeah, let's look at that, and I read it and didn't know how to do it, which I think we all, you know, oh good, I might fail, yeah. let me, I'd like to be challenged again, and so I said yes, and went into it, and we threw our best at it, Joe Mantello, you know, and, and Allison Pill, and it went well, uh, but Nine years later, Scott Rudin called and said, I want to put Blackbird on Broadway. And you're going, okay. Because <laughs> it's a tough, tough, it's, it's brutal to do. It's just the two of us. And, you know, it's about <clears throat> child abuse <clears throat> and being confronted. And uh, you're in the room with these two people. And this girl, Michelle Williams, shows up and just wants to talk about it at my place of work. And it's, we start where a lot of plays are nearing their climax. We walk on with that. It's like Chekhov, enter sobbing. Mm -hmm. So uh, it was, it's just hard to do. But um, I hadn't gone far enough. I hadn't, you know, in, in going back and now with Joe, <coughs> going, what can we do that deepens it? Is that the 12 year old girl that was abused? Michelle is playing someone who's 27, so it was 15 years ago, but we got to keep that 12 year old in the room. Otherwise, it's just a lover's quarrel between two of-age adults. So that it was examining and exploring what makes someone addicted to underage kids and his internal fight against that. It, you're powerless against it. And I didn't have any of that nine years ago. I, I made easier choices, I think. And this time, the, from page one, the choices are real, real hard. She's the bottle of whiskey waving under his nose from page one on, that he's been denying, he's addicted to, uh, not me, I'm not one of them, I'm not one of them, I'm not one of them. So to bring that on stage and to put it on Broadway, which, you know, is, it's a commercial risk to do a play about child abuse mm -hmm. on Broadway. Um, it's, it's, um, it's been a great ride, tough one, but a, yeah. a great ride. And we are gonna definitely talk about, for, for <coughs> each of you, there's various stamina tests and endurance that I want to ask you how you handle, but Zachary, what is it about this show, which has been around for decades and that, you know, has been interpreted by various people over the years, was it, what was it that led you to the opportunity? 
Well, I was unemployed, um, <laughs> so that's number one. Uh, number two, I, I, I grew up doing nothing but theater before I was blessed enough to be doing film and television, and I love theater, I love a live audience, I love the symbiotic relationship that you have with them. You feed them and they feed you back, and, and on a great night, there's no greater drug in the world. I mean, it just, it's amazing, and it's transcendent, and um, I, I, my agent called me uh, and said, hey, uh, you've got an offer to play George Novak, and she loves me. And I said, "Great, what she loves me." Uh, I had never, I'd never heard of the show. Um, and then, upon researching it, I realized why I'd never heard of it. It's a gem of a show, but it had only been on Broadway for eight and a half months originally. And then, when the Roundabout revived it in the '90s, it was only up for a year, and it's been done regionally everywhere. But I just had never seen it. And uh, and then I researched it more, and then I found out, oh, it's based on the perfumery, which, as was the shop around the corner, and you've got mail and all these other great similar stories and Jimmy Stewart and Tom Hanks are two of my idols. I love those guys. They're every men and uh, have so much humanity and humor behind what they do and and I thought, wow, it'd be really great to play a role, you know, that they have also tackled in their different iterations and so I said yes. Uh, found out later that I, I, somebody else was supposed to play the role, but schedule conflicts happened and he had to step out and then I got the job and I was stepping into this insane all-star team of Broadway royalty. I mean, from Scott Ellis to Warren Carlyle to Paul Gimignani in our leadership and then people like Lord Benanti and Gene Krakowski and Gavin Creel and Michael McGraw and Byron Jennings and the list goes on and on. And I'm a sophomore who's done like one other Broadway show and I'm like, just, just dribble correctly and you know what, don't even, don't even take a shot, just pass the ball, pass the ball. And uh, so it's crazy to, you know, to find myself at this table in, in this journey. But, uh, but speaking to the show specifically, I think, um, I think uh, Jerry Bach and, and Sheldon Harnick and Joe Masteroff, the, I don't even know they realized because again, it only lasted eight and a half months. Uh, Hello Dolly was just killing it on Broadway at the time, so I think anything really lasted or stood a chance against it. But they wrote a timeless, classic musical in that moment that really does, I mean, the, even the comedy, you know, younger and older audiences alike come to the show and they all get the jokes. I'm like, that's, that's great, because they're old. It really uh, holds up, it does. Yeah, yeah it holds up, recently. it's a it little gem of a show. And, and I think it, you know, and it's also very, it's, it, it's very romantic, it's very charming, it's very delightful. It, it, I don't think we're, we're not, I tell people this all the time, I don't, I don't think we're, we're not, it's not groundbreaking, we're not, we're not Hamilton, we're not doing things that, have, that haven't been done on Broadway and that needed to be done on Broadway and that are really kind of changing the game, but where I think we're offering people a really fun, step back into time, whimsical love story. You're doing what theater does, though. That's what you're doing the perfect two hours of what theater's supposed to do, which is to take people away for two hours, away from their cell phones, away from everything, sure. just to enjoy something. Sure. And to let other people take the load off. I think that's great, and you do a great job. Thanks. Does it, does it take people away from their cell phones? <laughs> well, well uh, your show did, and I, and I saw your show did. did my, my show never, not once. Not once, never. It doesn't take people away from their hard candies and drinks. But we had a, just real quick, but while I'm here, yeah. we had a person, I've never seen this before. I've seen phones, I've seen other things. We had a person in the front row with their phone right here, and I thought they were trying to show me something, which is also not yeah. okay. But, I, but it was here, and they were FaceTiming with a friend who what? was watching our show via their chest. Oh my what? God. So basically, they got a two-for-one ticket. Oh my God. And I, we, I've never, I was so blown away, I didn't know how to sort of even go, there's a cell phone, but it's not right. pictures, it's video. 
It's live. It was so wow. mind-blowing and rude. Is there a difference, in your view, between being the first to play a role on Broadway, as is the case in, in these roles with Leslie Reed, Jeff, and Alex, versus stepping into the shoes of someone who's at least one, maybe many people who have done it famously before, as Danny, Zachary, and Gabriel are dealing with this time around. I, I guess in the case of the, of the former, there's no point of reference, which might be a good thing, might not. And then in the latter, you're, you're potentially being compared. Uh, do you find one experience markedly different from the other? Well, hopefully the last time it was done was quite some time ago, so you can't really, you can't be gauged that closely. Right. But I don't know, I mean, I think you still have to just make it your own and trust that, trust in yourself and trust in the choices that you're making and trust in your director and, and in the piece and in the people that you're working with. I love doing new plays. I prefer doing new plays just because the creation and the birthing and collaboration is so thrilling. Uh, for me, the danger of playing an older play, uh, which I haven't done a lot, is that you want to find something different just to be different. Yeah. And, uh, and then you're, you get distracted by not being able to actually play the play. You're like, well, I, I'm going to do this thing to make it my own. Um, and I think that's a danger. There are certainly gorgeous plays that need to be done again and again. Right. And Danny, with six-time six fiddlers on Broadway, how do you navigate that? Uh, very carefully. <laughs> uh, when, when I first got the role, I uh, went back and watched everybody else do it. I actually wanted to. I usually don't do that, but I did, and I, I went. I even went to the Lincoln Center Library. I got permission from the Jerome Robbins estate to see the 1976 or five revival with Zero Mostel. Mm -hmm. And wow. Jerome Robbins didn't, during his lifetime, only let like one or two people wow. watch it because he so hated that production. Really? But I went and watched it, and I watched, and of course I'd done it with Theodore Bacall, and then. I basically had to, I learned as much as I could and then I threw it all out the window and tried my best to, to make it my own and make it as real and honest as possible and go back to the basics every single time with uh, just trying to listen as hard as I can every, every single night, which is so hard, you know, that test. Yeah. <laughs> Enormous. And Gabriel, I believe you even worked once with Ralph Richardson. He was certainly one of the people that, one of many who have given an iconic portrayal here. Is that daunting for you when you were asked to take it on? Well, if you look, say, at um, the Shakespeare canon, I mean, people do Lear and Hamlet and Much Ado, and uh, perhaps there's there's some kind of comparison there. But I think that if you're if you're given the role and you're lucky enough to be asked to play it, um, what you then bring to it is what you have inside yourself. Mm -hmm. You can't be anybody else. You, it, being subjective and objective, are, they're, they're impossible. But uh, I, I had a, a unique experience many years ago where I, I did this mini-series because I was broke at the time and a friend of mine said to me, look, you can, have, you can play this small part and there's a few quid in it for you and so forth. But the, the scenes that I had were with, one scene was with Ralph Richardson, Laurence Olivier, John Gielgud, and Richard Burton in the same scene. <laughs> oh, come on. <laughs> and it was remarkable to watch these people who had never actually been in the same scene before, to, 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 to actually watch them. And during the first take, Olivier stopped 
the, the, the camera and he said, um, can we have a moment? And he went over to the director, who was understandably extremely nervous, and uh, there was a bit of a kind of hushed kerfuffle in the corner, and finally wardrobe was called. And wardrobe people were completely freaked, and they came in. And it turned out that Olivier had noticed that Richardson's uh, military insignia had given him a higher um, <laughs> rank, <laughs> and he wanted an extra stripe. <laughs> And you understand. Yeah. And so, so the level of competition between right. them was, was, was fantastic. But um, I think. I'm sorry, but we're going to have to stop. Yeah. But just in, t in terms of that, no, you, I, I don't think you can think of, of, of anybody else doing it because um, I'm really anxious to see now when I finish this thing, you know, to look at if I can, look at some of those performances and see, you know, wh what they did with right. them. Leslie, you know now that uh, Hamilton is going to be revived through the end of time. Uh, how does it feel It can't be revived because it won't close. It won't close. <laughs> 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 this is true. <laughs> but, I mean, how does it feel to know that you, you know, you have set the bar, basically? Yeah. Um, it's, it feels like a gift. You know, this is my, it's not my first time originating, but it's my first time originating like this. Mm -hmm. And it's just—it's such a healing thing for an actor because um, everything that we do is right. Mm. You've never heard so much yes. Right. Yeah. Oh. Everything that you bring is right mm -hmm. because it's on you. It's on mm -hmm. David. It's on Philippa. You know. So these people—it's yeah. yes to you, to all the things that you've always done that people thought were weird or didn't fit. You know, didn't weren't quite right when you were trying to step into somebody else's shoes. Now all you hear is yes. So it's a beautifully healing thing. And one of the things I look forward to more than anything is seeing the tenth burr. <laughs> is seeing the fifteenth. You know, I, I, I my my Broadway debut was in Rent, and that show meant so much to me as a young performer. So I got plucked from my, you know, from my life in high school in Philadelphia and put into the center of my wildest dream. So the things I'll say about that is, number one, I was so happy to walk in their shoes. I mean, they were gone, but they were still there. You know, and so they, there's something that I feel connected to about that and that they, they left a legacy. They left a, a way that this show was to be done, the love and the passion that it was to be done with. That was the bar and we, had to reach that, and you know, so we endeavor to do that at the at the Richard Rogers. Well, I want to ask you. Each one of you is is visibly uh, working your asses off in these shows. I've seen them. I thought you were going to say tired. <laughs> 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 tired. That's because that's what this is about. I fell asleep in the middle of the answer to that question. <laughs> I completely <laughs> dozed off. So I, I want to, you know, it's a, it's amazing the variety of of effort and endurance that's required from from these parts. We've got. Uh, Alex going at a frenzied pace with, with music, uh, performing, singing, all dancing, all of it for almost every minute of his show. We've got four hours, several, t you know, oh, eight God. times a week, almost four hours for Gabriel, 90 minutes, but full speed ahead, no intermission for Jeff, on and on for, for each of you. And I just wonder if you can talk about, you know, how you prepare yourself for that, how you deal, with, it's basically, I guess, pain management to an extent. So if you can just jump in and share what, uh, what it's like for each Let's of you. Let's start with four hours. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's it. Yeah. 
I saw it, which and it was great, and Gabe was great, but my God, my God, mm. my God. I go, they're still acting. The curtain would come across, they're still acting. Yeah. And I felt so guilty because we're only, you know, 90 minutes maybe, which makes, it feels like 12, compared to what Gabe's doing, it's like we're out there for 12 minutes. Yeah. Well, and their, and their show fly, doesn't fly by for good reason. Like it has to no, be that long. Get, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like, oh, it was like 10 minutes. Right. You have to feel it with them. And mm. So how do you prepare yourself for that? I think, like people say to me, are you are you enjoying it? That, that I I I don't think you enjoy anything like that in the sense that oh yeah, fantastic, bring it on, this is going to be. But th th there's a very quiet satisfaction at the end, maybe due to the fact that you've gotten through it, mm -hmm. and it's that satisfaction at the end of having done it that that that, that, that keeps me going. Also, I think you have a duty to the audience to say, okay, mm -hmm. I've got to be. As you know, as fit and, and as disciplined and as focused, because w when you're in any show, you're not just dependent on your own memory and your own focus and discipline, but you're dependent on everybody else. And it's a bit like a mountain climbing metaphor. If if one person slips, five people go down the mountain, and it's especially true in this play because there's so much repetition. But I think that having long-term focus and long-term discipline comes back to actually each night and, and just saying, okay, well, tonight I'll get through it and to hell with everything else. So I think that my biggest problem, and I don't know if this, because uh, um, we're talking about shows that have been recognized, but I, I tend to suffer a lot from doubt and, and, and uh, I'll be in the wings and when they say that awful moment of places, please, and you think, well, I have all these words in my head. Will they all come out the way that I, that hopefully they want to come out? And then you got through it last night, but can I get through it tonight? But the real doubt of, the deepest doubt that you have as an actor surfaces. And keeping that at bay is, is, is difficult for me. Because if I, if I start to let that in, it can affect performance. And, and, and you know, if you do lose focus, even for a couple of seconds, in any play, and you have a version of, did I leave the kettle on, as you're doing, to be or not to be. <laughs> um, you know, you, you pay for that. So you have to be absolutely intent on everything that happens. But I don't know if anybody has, uh, if that means anything to anybody, that you doubt your ability to oh. give the performance. Oh absolutely. 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 Yeah, I'm literally talking just about telling it. myself, now I feel so much more normal than Gabriel Byrne feels right. the same <laughs> things that I feel. Yeah. But we're also all in really beautiful plays. And I, I feel like the, the, you just get on the ride. Mm. And because the material is so good, it really, if you trust it, it will take you. It will do the work for you. And I, and I know that to be true, that uh, rather than wrestling it to the ground, if I let the play do the thing, and with all your guys' shows, it, the, the play will do the work. There's also there's something too as far as the stamina and how and, and how to do it and the long term focus because that is something I truly believe in that there is there will be an end but you have to get there and that comes through the rehearsal process is pacing your show mine in particular it's a sprint for two hours and but the two things that keep me going is that one I created the sprint and so I said yes the whole experience I wanted to say yes and, and to to an extent and I had so much encouragement to do that. And, and to improvise and to create and invent, that's one. But the second one, and more importantly, is that I remember where I was when I saw my first Broadway show, 
and it was at the Winter Garden. And now 21 years later, there are inevitably, the gift that I have in my show is that families come see my show a lot. And it is inevitably somebody's first Broadway show almost every performance. And that is usually affirmed at the stage door. And so that's, if anything else, who I'm doing it for is those people that may have that first moment that I had that has legitimately changed my life. Totally. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the interesting things about this Broadway season is that the two most nominated shows are Hamilton and Shuffle Along, which feature big and almost entirely non-white cast. Additionally, there's Eclipse, the first Broadway production to be written, directed, and performed exclusively by black women, Color Purple, which centers around black actresses. The list goes on. What can Hollywood learn from Broadway? Because they're obviously having their own struggles with diversity at the moment. I so much. I mean, cl clearly like what you just talked about and just the casting, but I mean, even beyond the diversity within the casting this and and the storytelling, just I think storytelling in general, I think Hollywood is in a, a major drought right now for actually capturing people's hearts and attentions and minds. Mm -hmm. it, it's it's sacrificing just talent over whatever sells tickets. Mm -hmm. I just think talent transcends anything else, and talent and, and drive and, and merit. I mean, I, I, I grew up thinking that show business was a meritocracy, and it is not, um, and especially in Hollywood. And I think that now, especially in this, what people are calling the new golden age of theater, we're doing it right. People, no matter what they look like, have brought incredible stories to light, and people aren't going, it's good, but, but she's this, or but he's Broadway, that. Broadway has always done stuff yes. before. You know, uh, the children's hour about lesbians when they made the first movie they were just good friends you know so yeah. Hollywood has always shied away from anything that was challenging in that that way and I guess now they've been called on the carpet so they're they're stepping up but you should know you, you were in excellent Casa Valentino which was about trans issues before that's that right. was uh, being now it's that's right it was, so it was, yeah um, but but I think that can I just make please. a point there about that Hollywood is not, I don't think anybody in Hollywood ever sat down and said, let's make a really great artistic picture. It's run by corporations, and movies are products, and uh, the product has to sell to the widest possible audience, and in order to do that, you have to shave off anything that's emotionally challenging or, or complex. But I think, here's the thing that I've noticed, and I, I, I'd love to know how um, th th these other sh shows, when I look out at the, at the curtain call at the end, you're talking about diversity in, in, in terms of casting. I look at the audiences and I don't see any diversity in the shows that, 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 that I've been in. First of all, it costs a lot of money to go to Broadway. And you wonder about where the next wave of young writers is going to come from and, and young actors because the lure of television and films is, is, so, is so strong for obvious reasons. But I used to be a teacher uh, in Dublin and the kids asked me one day would I start a drama class. I knew nothing about it. I used to take them to the movies and to theatre and we discuss it. And the difference between them in a drama class and in a conventional class was enormous because they discovered something that allowed them to express themselves. It was unselfconscious in the sense there was no career involved. But the power of drama to alter children's lives and people's lives is incredibly moving. And when I look out at those audiences, I think to myself, well, is there any way that Broadway can address the expense notion, the idea of 
maybe doing shorter runs so that uh, actors can be more accommodated? And how do you produce diversity in Broadway audiences? Hamilton is one thing, but you can't get into that. So <laughs> school of rock. But isn't there a $25 ticket front row? $10 ticket. But they're still, they are difficult to get, right? I mean, yeah, it's still they're very difficult. Get. If I could speak to it for Please. a second. Um, you know, I, I love the theater and I love this moment that we're having right now, but I am not so fast to praise, uh, you know, I think what we're having is, is, a, is a rare moment. I think what we really need to pay attention to is the next two seasons. Right. You know, uh, oftentimes from, from my career, um, I've watched, you know, sort of my white, my white counterparts, you know, I, I imagine if you would with me, if, if, a, if a white actor was having a similar situation as, to, as, as I'm having right now in this show, the kind of success of the show, there might be three or four offers a week for the next shows that you're gonna do. There are no shows for me to do. You're saying you haven't even, even with the success, you're not hearing a... There's just, there, there's just no roles. What, I, what, I, yeah. what I'm, there's just, yeah. you know, especially when you look at an Aaron Burr, mm -hmm. you look at, you know, the, com the complexity, the humanity in this part, there's no parts. Mm -hmm. for me to play, right? Unless we're talking about somebody's gonna reimagine, somebody's gonna let me do a She Loves Me sure. or a Music Man, which, you mm -hmm. know, we were talking about earlier. These are roles that were written for white actors. And so, I don't say that to, you know, I'll take care of myself, we'll be fine. I'll go do, <laughs> I'll go do music, I'll go do TV, I'll go do what I have to do. But I think what we're gonna see, I hope what we're gonna see is five, six years from now, the shows that this show has inspired. Mm -hmm. The show that the mm -hmm. writers did, there's young writers <clears throat> that are being inspired by the show that are gonna start writing today. Mm -hmm. But um, a as far as diversity on Broadway, I'll be interested to see what the next two or three seasons yeah. look like yeah. because I don't hear a whole lot of stuff. Do you think colorblind casting is, is gonna be a, a more common thing in the future? Colorblind casting is great, yep. but you know what's better than colorblind casting? Roles that are actually sure. written about you Marcus and actually Wilson. Guys like that. Yeah. Roles that actually up. are written about You're right. I think the, the, it'll be interesting <clears throat> with the playwrights, too. Yeah, oh, yeah. The other thing, too, about Hollywood is they got a lot of problems. Diversity is a big one. The, the movie industry is fast becoming obsolete. Sorry, but the cineplexes and that yeah. whole thing of making a movie and having it open yeah. or not open and mm -hmm. then it's gone. Mm -hmm. Digital. Yeah. I mean, the opportunities for someone in their 20s that we didn't have. Yeah that digitally, they could, when they figure, and they could do it now, they just, Hollywood's standing in the way because they can't figure out how to make money yet. But the digital, when you can open your movie on the internet and make money like Louis C.K. is doing mm -hmm. with his DVD stuff, that's, I think that's an opportunity for, that's, I'll be interested to see what film, TV, and stage, even stage, mm -hmm. let's film this stuff. Well, mm -hmm. that's what I wanna ask you, let's how do you get, feel? Let's get, you know, uh, humans, let's shoot it. You yeah. Know? And the yeah. problem, so the, the problem there is that any, any, well, most productions that I've seen of plays, when you put a oh, static yeah, video, that, that, the that they're off, right. that, that you have to reimagine the thing for film, um, uh, and to get it out to the widest possible audience again. But that's an interesting point that you make about what's going to happen. But the thing about it is that if drama is kept in this exclusive, esoteric place called Broadway, and it's not going into the schools and into the communities, 
it'll be people like you or me that'll find it. But what you want is that to take drama out of that rarefied place and to make it less, um, like when people come to Broadway, they think they're coming to this place uh, like that, that, that has, has its own, and people are sometimes afraid to come. They'll go see a lab. It does feel like a hallowed ground exactly, sometimes. And, exactly, exactly. But I do think that, with, to Leslie's point, that I do, I'm, I'm confident for the next two seasons because I think it will, what, what this season has done, and, and, and not to discredit seasons before because there were some great shows that came in with those seasons, that it is starting to slowly unlatch the box that writers, producers, um, other creative artists behind the scenes have shied away from stories that they wanted to tell that went, I don't know if this is going to make any money. I don't think necessarily matters, but that's not up to me. But I think a bunch of writers are going, oh, no, this would work well now, because I've seen it, it's seen it succeed. And so younger writers with their ideas, whether it be gay, uh, transgender, that's race. The, that's, that's a great point, too, because I, you know, I really want to speak at this table, too, for uh, you can speak to this, too. You know, I think America, obviously, things get boiled down into a black and white issue. But I want to see stories about Asian people. Yes. I want to see mm -hmm. stories about, yes. mm -hmm. about mm -hmm. trans people. Yes. I want to, you know, I want to see. It's diversity is not just a black and white issue. Mm -hmm. That's in, it's important. We all know why we focus on mm -hmm. that in America. But we still got some work to do when you talk about real diversity. Sure. Yes, but, you're but doesn't right. and I think going back to kind of what you were saying before about the writers. I mean, to me, and, and this is when the whole shakedown or shakeout, whatever the term would be, <clears> uh, with the Oscars happened. I, fallout. The fallout, thank you. <laughs> thank <Shake> you. <laughs> Again, we're all a little tired. Uh, but when all that was going down, there was definitely a moment I, I kind of felt, uh, not that I didn't understand the, um, the frustrations that were going on, but I, I was kind of looking at it going, well, you know, that's the finish line. Like, the, the, the route, the problem happens way, way, way before that. And, and like what you were talking about before, and I completely agree, Unfortunately, so much of the material that's out there, she loves me. It is a fully ca a Caucasian cast because it takes place in Budapest in the 1930s and that's what was written and that's what it was, right? <clears throat> if you want to change the game and the, and the roles that are available, it has to start with the writing. And as we all know, or at least what writers always tell us, and I, I guess I do believe it, you write what you know, right? So if we're going to change the route in order to have a much better tree that's flourishing, You've got to start with the writing. Otherwise, those roles will never come. Start with the idea. And then, what's that? We'll start with the idea that doesn't get shut down. Sure, absolutely. I think is a really important thing. And might I also add the Roundabout Theater Company, not to just plug my, because they're my people, but they really do have an amazing system. They go out into the boroughs. They go out and work with all kinds of schools and high schools and give them opportunities to come and not only see Broadway shows, but get behind the scenes, meet actors, meet stagehands and IATSE. There are groups that have been working at this for some and time. And that happens more and more and more. And it's happening more and more, which is great. But yeah, there have got to be more writers that are encouraged, writers of color, of all colors, yeah. and, and uh, backgrounds and, yes. and, what, and whatnot, because that will be the change. I want to go around the horn here because I'm curious to know everybody, the, the, the sense that I get, the thing that maybe draws a lot of you who have worked across the mediums, media, uh, back to the theater is that live audience response, that's what I keep hearing. And I want to know for you, what is the moment in the show, in each of your shows, just concisely, that that audience response is most palpable, most meaningful to you? Just briefly go around the horn, Alex. For me, it's the very first laugh that I get in the show, uh, which is essentially built in. I mean, it's a laugh line, and when you figure that out, the audience that I don't know yet becomes knowable. 
and that's the last piece of the puzzle, which I think is incredibly, wonderfully unfair to actors where the curtain goes up, is that there's another character in the show you haven't met yet, and the first laugh will determine, and the next couple, who they're gonna be, and you get to figure them out, and, but the first laugh for me is my favorite moment in life. Leslie? The curtain call. I don't, I don't know how we end up there every night, but every audience is different. The journey along the way is different, but we end up at the same place every night. They're crying, they're standing, they're hugging each other. Yeah. So that, that curtain call, we always mm -hmm. end up at the same place. Mm -hmm. I would say it's the moments, the, the, like the tiny moments of silence between the light coming down and the applause. When the audience comes back from wherever they've been to this moment. And sometimes that silence can be louder than any applause. Mm. Um, I think right answers all of you guys. Um, I, I think the first laugh is hugely important and it's two seconds into our play. And the curtain call, because you can, I, I feel like there's a, a communion in a way amongst us all. We've just had this event together. We acknowledge your contribution. They acknowledge our contribution. And it's, um, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, we have a false Brechtian curtain that I pull across when I tell my daughter Chava that she's dead to me and uh, because she's married outside the religion. And uh, when I finally bring that across and scream no, that's the most powerful moment for me in the show. You feel the confusion in the audience. How could he turn his back on his own daughter? Some people thinking, and, he, and I hear it sometimes, yes, some people want you to do that. And other people are crying. It's a very confusing and uh, communal moment. And I think the most significant for me in the play. Um. This is very difficult for me to answer. Uh, I, I think I think curtain call. I mean, I think curtain call is very obvious for so many reasons. I mean, because whether it's a musical or, or a play, you get the you are communing with the audience in that moment. Um, we have some moments in the overture that uh, I know if the audience applause, like after this great uh, violin solo, you feel like oh they're going to be with us. Um, but I, I, I if I had to pick one moment, I'm sorry I'm rambling, but it would be really right at the, at the end when George and Amalia kind of discover that they are lovers and, uh, and we kiss. And if we have, if the people have really been on a journey and they're just overwhelmed, then they start clapping and, and, uh, and that's always a really nice, nice moment. Arguably, it could be the smartest theater going audience in the world. I mean, London and Dublin and elsewhere would rival that, but of course, but it's certainly one of the smartest. So when you're sitting out there in the middle of the show, with people who've seen Vanessa Redgrave in and remember Jason Robards in, to get the dead silence, dead silence, time and time and time again. I'll, I'll, I'll miss that the most. With our last minute here, and literally it's just one minute, I want, this is our rapid fire, please just shout out whatever your answer is. I'd be curious to know some fun <laughs> questions. Thoughts about entrance applause, good or bad? Terrible. Hate it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, they can awful. stop doing that. Yes. Um, you know, most annoying. <laughs> 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 Love it. Do you really? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Stop. That's like you to know. Welcome. Most Thank you. <laughs> Have you ever not gotten it? <laughs> yes. I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> most annoying thing audience members do? Cell phones. Yeah, I don't know. Talking. Co coughing. Coughing. Yeah. Oof. 
Disengaging. Cell phone. Yeah. Cell phone. Also, Any disengagement. Some people put their playbills on the stage. <laughs> what? Insane. Yeah. Hoping that you'll sign it, Michelle. <laughs> no, actually, Here you are. kicked it off the other day. Non-friend or relative whose attendance at your show has meant the most to you? Non-friend. Oh, John Lithgow. John Lithgow came to our show. That blew me away. President Obama. Matt, Matt Lucas from, from Little Britain. Okay. Oh, yeah. Oddest thing in your dressing room. Oh, a, a, a picture randomly of Ryan Gosling playing Robert Durst. <laughs> and there's no, I have a story, but it's too long. Right. Uh, what you do during intermission? Sleep. I don't have one. No, oh, really? <laughs> no I don't have one either. Change I, I and change wipe off my face. That's exactly what I do. I eat. I have to. I eat like a full meal. I cannot eat anything. What you do on your day off? Do round tables. Round tables. Round tables. I see shows. What you'd be doing if you weren't an actor? Teacher. Teacher. Teacher, lumber company, architect, DJ, yeah. writer, and uh, lastly, most creative way in which somebody has tried to hit you up for tickets. Oh, oh. I wish they'd be more creative. Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. remember when I did that thing for you that time? What is that? What's I'm bringing a movie producer who might hire you. <laughs> yeah. oh. that's, that's good. That's good. Good to leave. Leslie, you got to have a good story. Give us, give us, Jesus. close us out. Oh. Okay, so you know they, they they do make a certain small number of standing room tickets available right. to us, which we get a pair for a show. And so there was this this girl. She's gonna. I'm not gonna say your name, but <laughs> you should know who you are. And so she hits me up. I haven't talked to this girl in years, years and years. You know. Okay, great. Um, you know, I can get you. I can get you, and I can get you. I can get you a couple seats. Okay, great. So I just need five for this week. What? <laughs> yeah. what? Give an inch. Five. Oh, I can't get you God. five. I hope you'll be happy with the right, two. Right, right. Yeah, that oh was great. God. Well, listen, thank you guys all so much for Thanks, doing Scott. this. Thank you for having us. Really terrific work. Really Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thank, thank you. Thank you. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you wanna get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.